Welcome to episode 108 of the Daniel Yoris podcast with today's guest, Dr. Joe Baker. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Joined here today by Dr. Joe Baker. Dr. Baker, thank you so much for being here. It's a, it's a pleasure to speak with you again after after many years. You're one of my professors. Not sure that you'd remember me in a sea of lecture hall of many, many people, but I certainly remember you. So thank you so much for being here. It's great to reconnect. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the to the discussion. I want to start off with a quote that you said at the end of one of the, I don't remember which course it was now, and so maybe that's a testament to the whole education system, but we do remember lots of things from school. Um, this is one thing you said at the end of one of the courses. You are not limited by your biology, but by your resilience and your willingness to work hard. And that is something that, I don't know if you came up with that or if that's taken from somewhere else or either way, but that's something that I remember I wrote that down on my phone that day and it's been like a pinned note on my phone ever since then. Probably a really great way to sum up your entire book almost. Yeah, I think so. And that's uh, been our philosophy. I think if anything um, for me has changed, it's the, you know, we are, our biology does constrain us a little bit when we talk about people at the absolute limits of human function. But the majority of us are so far away from that, that, um, you know, hard work, resilience, um, effort, those kinds of things are really the difference makers in uh, in terms of people and the things that they're able to do. Uh, so I still stand by that uh, quote, even after writing the book and diving deep into the biology stuff. Uh, I think that's a good takeaway message for everybody. If you want to get better at something, you know, work a bit harder, figure out how you can put more effort in in a more a smarter way. All of those kinds of things are the big difference makers. Yeah, I totally agree. And Quite honestly, the podcast could end right there, and that's the <laughs> and that's the whole message. But but uh, you, you referenced the book, and just to give a little bit of people uh, some context, uh, tell us about the book and and how it kind of came about and and all that. Sure. So um, after doing research in this area for well, I've been at York for almost twenty years now, um, and so working with organizations and teams around the world and high performance athletes. Um, you know, the, this issue of talent keeps coming up uh, and it sort of it, it ran counter to what we knew about athlete development and human development, which is the hard work and effort and, you know, time on task is the more important variable. But a lot of people think about talent as being the limiting factor. And so we wanted or I wanted to do a bit of a deep dive into that area um, and, and come up with some conclusions that we could make. And so this was really um you know, it's almost the capstone of 20 years in this area, but it, the focused work in the area of talent, maybe over the last five uh, or six, uh, just so we could have a book. And it's different than any other book that I've written. And this one's written for coaches. It's written for parents and practitioners. It's not written for scientists. Uh, and so I wanted to be able to distill all of that sort of technical scientific knowledge into something that parents and coaches and practitioners could read and actually take away, um, you know, some recommendations. Yeah. And I think that was very evident in the book. I read through most of it, not all of it yet in, in preparation for this and just my own curiosity and, and, and knowledge in, in your work. Um, the book is called uh, The Tyranny of Talents, showing just on the on the video here um, for, for everyone listening. Um, available everywhere books are available. Uh, it's on Amazon right now. I, I published it through my own uh, publishing company that I created because, um, yeah, well, we could, you know, Logistics. there's a whole rabbit hole about uh, publishing. But uh, yeah, this was, a, for me, it was a smarter decision to go that route and keep the cost down and get more people reading it. But um, yeah, Amazon is the best place to get it at the moment. Right. Makes sense. Um, and, and I think that yeah. relating this to, you know, the most amount of people versus the researchers is probably the most applicable way to do this. People can argue about talent in, in the classroom or in the laboratory, but it doesn't actually matter because that doesn't impact, you know, little Johnny who's playing hockey and his, and his parents are yelling at him to skate faster because he's whatever. And when he, and he's only nine years old, that's not, that's where this whole concept of talent and the application of it and how we understand it in the real world really comes about. And, you know, as Canadians, I'm sure you know many people who were told from a young age that they either have it, they're going to the NHL, they're going to, they're the next Wayne Gretzky and, and then didn't pan out, didn't even really make it very far. And then there were some people who were told that they have it and kept pursuing that route, even though the dream in all reality was very far gone. And so I think that 
and and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is some of the the dangers of early talent identification where you plant this seed in a child's head that is turns out to not be realistic. And so I just want your your thoughts on on that and how that kind of impacts uh, athletes and, and society as a whole. Well, I think that's the complexity that we're dealing with, right? Like, because there are examples of, you know, the Connor McDavid's, the Sidney Crosby's that were identified really young as being absolute superstars and ended up becoming absolute superstars. So, like, we have examples of these cases. And I think too often we focus on the the ones that fit the the model that we have and not the ones, you know, there was probably a dozen other ones that were identified at the same time as McDavid or or um, Crosby that didn't pan out. We focus on you know we we it's classic confirmation bias. We find the ones that fit what we think is the way the world works, and we forget about the majority of them that don't fit that mold. And so that was kind of the message in the book was there's there's power in these labels that you put on kids when they're young, uh, and so you better be right in terms of the way that you're talking about those kids because the consequences of a bad label um, are pretty uh, profound and pretty consequential. And so, um, you know, that was a big one of the big chapters in the book is the power of these labels. Not, you know, I, I think the beneficial part. Yeah, some people when they're told that they have talent is a great thing for their motivation and their focus and those kinds of things. But it's the opposite when you tell a, a kid at you know, under seven, under nine, under 11, you know, I don't think you have talent. That label sticks. And most of the time when people make those kinds of forecasts and decisions early on, they're not correct because uh, talent isn't something that you can identify that early uh, in a lot of uh, situations, especially for complicated sports like ice hockey or soccer or, um, uh, you know, where the level of complexity is so much bigger than, say, 100 meter sprinting or, um, you know, long jump, where maybe we've got that distilled down to some you know, pretty key physical variables, complicated team sports, different animal altogether. That's something that you, you put that chart in the book. And I very clearly remember that from, uh, from class years ago now about the accuracy of talent identification through the the draft system. Now, I, I don't know if you, if you've done this or, or have any data on this or just ideas on it, but there's not really a draft system for sports like track and field where it's very objective. You're either fast or you're not. There's no, you know, special moves or you've got that flair or the, you know, the other intangibles that may not be objective measures of quality at the sport. So do we see better talent identification in those more objective sports? And then I think a third, uh, just to continue going on this thought tangent, a third sort of classification of sport may be, the very objective things like track and field, then team sports where there's a lot of complexity, but a very clear uh, objective as far as winner and loser, you scored more goals or less goals. And then the third pool being uh, sports where there's a lot of judgment in the scoring criteria like gymnastics or, or snowboarding or those kind of sports. So do we see like a downgrade in talent identification across those things due to the objectivity of the sport? It's tough to know because um, to a certain extent, they're apples and oranges, right? Like the ecosystem of development for athletes in those different sports is is very different. Um, the depth of competition is different. Like soccer, you know, the, it's hard to, it would be hard to pick another sport that has that depth of competition internationally. Um, and so it's tough to actually put them on a level playing field and evaluate them relative to each other. But I think that emphasizes the importance of understanding the overall system as a whole, because oftentimes what happens is um, national sport governing bodies will have one model. So on the podium in Canada, for example, will say, you know, we want everybody to follow this model. Well, for some sports, that model works. For other sports, it doesn't work at all because the depth of competition is different. The number of athletes coming in the stream, you know, if we think about the classic sort of athlete development pyramid, for some sports, it's not a pyramid. It's a silo. They're, they need to nurture everyone that comes in the system because they can't afford anybody to leave because if they leave, then it undermines the whole system. Uh, so even in track and field, you know, uh, sprinting, maybe uh, distance running, those we got lots of numbers for athletes in those things. Maybe throwing sports, the numbers are a lot less. So even within one category of sports, there's lots of nuance that we need to be aware of. Right. And, and, and this makes it very... It just makes it difficult to navigate this as a 
as a parent, I, I often think about, you know, when I watch the Olympics and there's some of the less common sports, mainly not the team sports. And I think about who started doing this when they were eight years old, whose parent was like, hey, you should go be a discus thrower rather than play soccer or baseball or whatever. It seems like not not that it's wrong, but it seems obscure. And so people find these sports yeah. by by some mechanism. And like you said, there's not a really big pool of people playing this. So the competition is lower, but that also makes it harder to get better because another thing that you reference in the book is that we need the sort of not pro athletes but almost there to push everyone and make the level of the sport higher so if you're a discus thrower and you know you have one person you're competing against in every competition in the province of Ontario it's like well you're coming second place no matter what so you'll you know you'll have hundreds of silver medals but your level of competition might not be that might not be that high and so when you get to a more international stage or a larger stage you're like oh wow these these guys or girls are they're they're like really good and I, I thought i was good but i was only better than you know johnny who's my neighbor so <laughs> it makes it very difficult to to progress in the sport yeah absolutely and i think that's the you know in the book i think one of the takeaway messages we need to focus more on optimizing the developmental environment for all the athletes that are in there and if we figured that out um, then we wouldn't have these sort of big fish, little pond um, situations where you look like an absolute superstar until you actually put yourself into a position where you, you know, you're not the big fish in a little pond. And if you haven't developed coping skills, if you haven't developed skills to be able to make that transition, then, you know, human behavior would say, you're not going to be motivated to make that uh, later in the pathway when you're doing well, and then you absolutely start getting crushed that's not motivating. Why would anybody want to stick around there? People that do, they have some sort of coping skills that allows them to make that transition. Uh, so I think those, you know, that that's the, again, that's the complexity of athlete development that we're talking about. There isn't a one size fits all model that'll span across sports, but even across individuals. Uh, so we need to understand that, um, that complexity and that nuance a lot better than we do. I think another kind of uh, direction I want to, want to start to lead people in here is, understanding all of the other things that are maybe not so obvious as to what makes someone identified early things like the population size of the city and these and these like other external you know birth month and these kind of things but even one very good example i can say from from my own life is i played soccer that was my sport and up till you nine or you 11 i can't remember exactly what it is but you play seven aside versus 11 aside on the field right and so i remember there was a boy on my team who was when we were seven aside he was like the best player in the league scored goals from half he was just bigger than everyone larger than everyone i don't remember what 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 when his birthday was but he was the biggest kid in the league and he would score goals like crazy and then the the year that we transitioned to the larger field he couldn't cope couldn't run couldn't was was yeah. effectively useless in in the game and that's something that someone could have said well that guy is the next you know whatever next messi next next yeah. ronaldo and then gets phased out really quickly so i want you just to speak to some of these sort of like intangible things where you know someone who's just in a larger body because they're taller or uh, whatever, when they're younger, might get pushed into the pool versus like a December baby who's just smaller and doesn't get identified early. And what are the long-term implications of that? Well, I think there's a couple of, um, you know, big examples there. The one that you mentioned, that relative age effect, the difference in a one-year age group between the oldest kid in that age group and the youngest kid, um, that difference, we see that show up in a lot of sports where there's a depth of competition and early selection because, what happens is coaches are more likely to think they see talent when in fact they see uh, growth and development. Uh, and so the difference between those players has nothing to do with talent and the fact that one, you know, could be almost a year older than the youngest person in that group that they're being compared against. Um, and so these things, we see these things at the end of the pathway, but they're really mechanisms that are happening at the beginning of the pathway. And those kinds of things uh, have profound effects on an individual's uh, long-term potential and long-term development because being selected early, you get put into a, you, you know, in ice hockey or in soccer, you get put into the representative group. Uh, you get better coaches, you get better training time, you play more competitions against better components. Well, those things are the things that make a difference in skill development and acquisition. And so being relatively older is an advantage to a point. And the interesting thing about that effect is if you're able to survive as a relatively younger player in those environments, 
then the data suggests that at the end of the pathway, they get drafted into the NHL earlier. In professional soccer, they end up making more money in their careers. So being younger in a disadvantaged environment does seem to be beneficial for the development of skill. Could also be that they had more talent. We don't know exactly, but it does seem like at the end of the pathway, the relatively younger players uh, have an advantage by being in that disadvantaged pathway. Again, this is the complexity of what we think is a really simple effect, but not simple in any way. Uh, and so that relative age effect, I think, is a big one. The other one that we see, which is highlights the value of um, the developmental environment is the left-hander effect in a lot of sports. Uh, we see it in we see it in football as well. People that can kick well with their you know their left foot dominant. Um, in those kinds of situations, are uh, they have an advantage because the majority of the population, sometimes up to ninety percent of the population, is right orientation. So the uh, opponents get really good at seeing what a right uh, oriented person looks like. Their brain gets good at making that adaptation. And when they see a left-oriented person, they struggle. They don't make as good a decision. And so those people have an advantage. Again, they start at the same level of skill, but because of their rarity, they end up being more highly valued at the end of the pathway because they're harder to predict. The, the They have greater likelihood of success. So how do you how do you fix that? You fix it by optimizing the developmental pathway. These things that look like they could be stable differences. Well, we can control them if we design a better pathway for people. As far as designing a better pathway, would something to offset the relative age effect be shortening the year cycle? So instead of, you know, all kids born in 2023 played together, it's kids born January to March in 2023 and then April to May or or whatever it is. But I think the, the the downside of that would probably be there's not enough kids to support that. So logistically, yeah. it wouldn't really work. But in theory, if there were enough people, it would work. Does that does that make sense, or would we still see the relative age effect where kids in January would still get more than or be more selected than kids in March? It's a shorter window, but it still would exist across a large number, right? Yeah, technically the window would just shrink, but the differences would still be there. You would you would hope the size of the effect would get smaller as well. Um, but you're, you've identified the problem, which is logistics and uh, administration would make it so complicated. Uh, there's a reason we put people into one-year age groups. It's to try to minimize those differences in competition. We do it in school as well to minimize differences in learning ability. Uh, so you could shrink it down into smaller groups. You could, you know, think back to the way education used to be delivered. It was everybody was in a single room. It didn't matter what grade you were in. The instructor would adjust the way that they delivered things so that people at different skill levels would be getting the instruction that they needed. I don't think we're ever going to go back to that system, but there was value in that approach because um, you're personalizing the delivery of instruction. We've gotten to this sort of mass production of athletes as our philosophy that we, you know, we try to do everything we can so that we can deliver gross general messages to the whole group, as opposed to individualized messages across each um, developing athlete. So I think there's, again, it comes back to this, how would we optimize the learning environment for every single athlete under our care? We would do that with an individualized approach as opposed to these sort of general ones. That philosophy might actually take care of the relative age effect itself because we're not interested in you compared to the group. We're interested in you today as you were uh, yesterday. Did you get better? Uh, and so whether you got better relative to the group is kind of irrelevant to that question. And so to actually implement that, would you have to sort of have a team of, you know, 2023s and then yeah. during the practice, say their practice is an hour and a half long, maybe half of it is team everyone together. And then another half of it is break off into groups based on relative age, or it may be even be height because a kid who's born in December could still be taller and bigger yeah. than a kid born in January. And that would in most sports effectively offset the, the relative uh, age difference. Um, but so, so separate it by somehow and then let those kids kind of flourish together. Would that be a way to offset this and sort of implement the individual approach in team environment? Yeah, I think that would be one way to do it. Another way to do it would be to remove the 
um, the uh, administrative load on the coach and have the players, especially in youth uh, sports. Uh, if you watch kids on a field playing, uh, playing soccer or baseball or whatever, they, f- they figure out a way to minimize differences between performance groups. So if there's one kid that's absolutely dominant, then well, we're going to play five on seven or, you know, four on eight or whatever, like they figure out a way to minimize that difference. Uh, and so oftentimes kids are better at figuring out those things and making it more equal uh, than coaches thinking, well, we've got one administrative strategy and here's how we're going to do it. You know, I think f- especially for youth, uh, there's maybe more value in letting uh, kids figure it out for themselves because they probably do a better job of figuring it out. But it also shifts the autonomy towards the kids as opposed to the coach. And that personal autonomy is actually a really Im- important psychological variable for us to develop. That's so interesting that you say that because I had never really thought about that but it instantly brings back memories of you know playing yeah. playing games at recess and I was a soccer player of course most kids in my class didn't play soccer at a high level so it would be like me and another guy versus you know everybody the rest of the class or yeah. we were playing basketball there was the tall kids you know two of them versus nine other people or whatever it was and uh and it's so interesting how that how that works why do you think that we do that like there's got to be some inherent psychological a motivation for doing that is it simply just fairness and we like to be competitive it's not fun to win a game you know 15 nothing every time it, it's fun once and and then no longer so is it some sort of uh, inherent competition that we seek is that probably the reason that we do that i think so and if you um uh, look at evolutionary um theories of why we play and things like that it's to develop skill it's to uh, develop competency and that kind of stuff and like you said we don't develop competency if we're winning everything. Like if it, the task is too easy, then we don't get any reward from the task. And so we, you know, we figure out a way to make the task just difficult enough that we're um, we're going to be challenged by it. But the real, but the likelihood of success is going to be there if we work hard enough. Uh, so there's this idea that it needs, you know, we need to see success about eighty percent of the time. That means twenty percent of the time we're going to fail. Uh, and that sweet spot in terms of difficulty seems to be something that's really rewarding and motivating for us. And I think we see that in kids all the time. They they don't want to win all the time. They you know there's there's challenge in the losing. Uh, that's a really important part uh, that I think we we forget about when we design, especially youth sport environments where we try to remove the score because we think that there's something value about knowing who's the winner and who's the loser. Kids always know who won. Yeah. Uh, and so by doing that, I think we undermine uh, something that's really important in the way we deliver sport. I used to be uh, quite involved in, in coaching soccer. And it was in it was during a time when the, the league, and it was just house league uh, mostly, but it was transitioning from keeping score and standings to not keeping score and standings. I thought it was very strange. And what I saw, I also refereed it as well. What I saw through this was that the kids always knew the score. They knew who was winning and losing. They knew who the best player on the field was. They knew who the best team was. Everybody knows what's going on. But the sad part and the reality that I observed was that this removal of the score and the standings was so that the parents wouldn't get too involved. And and there's yeah. such a, a a problem with parents getting in the way of kids' sports. Like this was house league, and these kids were you know 12 years old. They had already not really been in the system. None of these kids were going to become professional soccer players. So you know they're all having fun, and that's all great, and I'm all for that. But like none of them are becoming professional soccer players. But parents are getting in arguments, yelling, almost becoming uh, physical with each other, yelling over scores, and so removing the scores and the standings was so that the parents would just chill out. But then that's like at the expense of of the kids. And so it's this whole yeah. problem of, of parents or adults getting in the way of, of kids sports. And I think that's, that's really sad because the, the competition is part of the thing. You play the sport to have fun and to learn and, and all this stuff, but you play the sport to win. You don't play soccer just to go, just to go play. There is an objective to the game. And if there was no objective that there would be no game. So I, 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 I hate that that's a, that that's a thing, but it seems to be uh, the reality. And again, it's just another one of these complexities that, that makes the whole, athlete pathway much more difficult is parents over involvement in in sport and i think in some sports we see that less and i think i would believe in in europe i think it's actually a lot less than here based on my experience uh playing soccer there where parents are not allowed on the practice field parents are not allowed to yell instructions during the game versus here it's that's not the case at all and it causes a lot of problems so there, there are definitely benefits to that system um and and downsides to to our system um, and yeah, go ahead. 
Well, yeah, I agree. And I think part of the problem that we have in um, North American sport is the, it's not that the parents are monsters. It's that they don't understand their role in the athlete development um, pathway, right? Their ecosystem, their job in the athlete development ecosystem is not to be critical of the coach. They don't have the coach's knowledge of skill development and uh, long-term athlete development. And so they should, they should be quiet when we're, they're talking about skill development, they're there to be the emotional support system for that athlete. They, you know, so they should ask them how, how the game went, uh, sit back and, and be supportive, uh, all that kind of stuff. But if we don't have a clear role for parents to play in that pathway, they'll fill that role with what they think is the right one. Um, parents yelling from the stands is because they think their child is being disadvantaged or they think it's the right thing to do, all those kinds of things. They, it comes from a, position. And I think the majority of the time, not, you know, there are some monsters out there, but um, the majority of the time they're doing that because they think it's the right thing to do. And that for me, I think that's a limitation in our education of what parents role should be. Uh, and so we can change that. We can change that through education. Uh, we're starting to see that in uh, soccer and ice hockey, where they have almost parent code of conduct which I think is the first step. Like, this is what you don't do. The You know, a better approach would be, this is what you do. Here's how you be a supportive parent for your child. Uh, it's not by yelling in the stands, but yeah, be there, be, in, you know, be involved, be intense, but don't yell at other kids. Like, that's not the solution. And so I think, you know, if we had a better understanding of what do we actually want parents to do to help in the skill development of their athlete, I think most parents would do it. It's just they don't have that information now. Uh, and so, you know, they're filling a vacuum with what they think is the right decision, but it's the wrong one. Um, the other thing I think, to go back to your point about removing the score from uh, sport, I think we forget that the way that we construct and deliver sport is competitive. Uh, and so, you know, in our research lab, we make a big difference between exercise and sport. Sport is you get all the physical stimulus of exercise, but you get more because of the way that sport is constructed. There's value in competition, you know, personally, you know, measuring yourself against standards, measuring yourself against other people. Uh, it's not for everyone, but for the people that seek out sport, that is a really important element of what they're trying to get out of that environment. So when you remove the, the score and everybody gets a participation ribbon and all that kind of stuff, you're undermining the thing that makes sport unique and so valuable for human development. Uh, and so I think that like we're trying to really push back against that idea because we don't want to sanitize sport. We don't want to make it exercise. There's something special about that, that element. How do we figure out what that is and deliver it in a, in a more positive way? Uh, that's a different question than removing it altogether. Was the push towards the, the participation trophy kind of idea simply about not hurting people's feelings is that what the push was towards I, I imagine it wasn't based in any sort of you know talent research it doesn't it doesn't doesn't seem to suggest in any way that it would produce better players because it's also not seen in the competitive uh leagues it's mostly seen in the in the house leagues and the younger leagues where like the score and result doesn't really matter anyways and it doesn't have to matter but we should acknowledge that it's there so was it just about like not hurting people's feelings is that where it came from I think probably, I don't know enough about the the policy that went into thinking about that, but it's probably this idea that, um, you know, we don't want kids to feel bad about their participation, uh, which, you know, again, from a developmental standpoint, that looks like a pretty pro social message. Uh, you know, we don't want kids to feel bad because if they feel bad, they're not going to do sport. You know, I think the opposite is is probably the reality, which is uh, they're going to feel bad. Uh, so, teach them the skills to not feel bad about that. So use this as an opportunity to learn either psychological coping skills or provide them with opportunities to develop technical skills so that they're seeing competence go up. You know, maybe enjoyment goes down a little bit because they lost, but if competence is going up because they're getting better, even though they're losing, then they're still going to be motivated to participate. So again, it's looking at this thing from too simple a perspective and putting all the eggs in the enjoyment basket and, but that's only one thing that motivates us. If we, if we see improvement, then win or loss doesn't matter. You know, think about runners and things like that. If, if you didn't win the race, but you set a personal best, then you still pull a, a success away from that experience. 
I think, you know, we forget that kids are very resilient and they're designed to acquire these kinds of coping skills during childhood and youth that they're going to use for the rest of their life. And if we don't use sport as a way to help them develop those skills, I think we're missing a really, um, you know, important opportunity. Yeah. And it translates across sport because if you've never lost in sport and you've never lost let's extrapolate this a little bit never lost in academia you always you know you don't get we stop giving grades on tests up until grade 12 or whatever it is and then you get to university or you you get a job and uh you don't get the job you're and you've never lost in your life like you are going to be distraught and that is and that is not okay it's it's almost like lying to lying to kids even though they know the truth but you tell them it's not the truth and it would probably create some sort of confusion which 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 leads me down a, another path of, of thought here where when we speak to children in the athletic context uh, an example would be uh there's there's a girl who has you know she plays hockey at a decently high level her shot is her the weak spot of her game so the mother's worried about well do i tell her that she has a weak shot or do i phrase it as um the shot is the part of the game of the part of your game that you need to work on most. And so there becomes this balance between, well, I want to frame things positively, but I also don't want to lie. Like if the kid is really not good, then then they're not good and you can't tell them that they're the best forever because eventually that's going to come crumbling down on them. But you want to frame this positively. So how do we go about balancing that that positive attitude but also maintaining some sort of reality? Yeah, I think the, the the way that I would approach that sort of situation is to talk to the coach, right? Like the 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 parent coach interaction is is a really important one. So it would it should really come from the coach uh, that technical feedback that the shot is weak because you know sometimes a parent might go to the coach and say, "I can see that my daughter's shot is weak," and the coach will say, "No, it's actually as good as we see at this level." Uh, so we don't want to give her that feedback because giving that negative feedback has more consequence than forgetting about the shot, which is going to develop over time. Uh, so I think, you know, let the coach be the determiner of, of the value of that information. Doesn't mean the parent shouldn't provide that information, but let the coach actually be the person that delivers that because the coach could only be there for a couple of years. If the parent undermines the confidence that that child has, that stays around for a lot longer. And so, you know, we, again, we want the parent to be the absolute uh, cheerleader for that athlete no matter what stage of development they're in uh, and so that's the damage that's potential damage of that technical feedback is you're undermining that you know my my mom or my dad always has my back um, well let the coach be the one that delivers the bad news the parent is always there to be that supportive um, you know that supportive cheerleader the problem comes in a lot of volunteer and even some of the high performance development system where the parent is the coach that's a different uh, situation altogether. Yeah, we're seeing a lot less of that now. I know that it, for for a lot longer in hockey, just because there's a more of a system in Canada here. Anyways, that's been like AAA coaches for as long as I can remember have always been paid coaches who are not parents of 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 kids on the team. But it, I know that we're starting to see it a lot more in soccer now. But the downside of that is it makes the sport more expensive, which then excludes some other kids and has like other downstream effects. Soccer as a relatively cheap sport to play is now costing parents several thousand dollars to be in the top teams and in the top academies and, and whatever in, in Canada anyways. Whereas, you know, the reason, one of the reasons why soccer is one of the most played sports around the world is because it is so accessible to everyone. And, you know, we've all seen videos of kids in Brazil playing soccer with, you know, rolled up plastic uh, garbage bags as a ball because they know they don't have shoes and on dirt ground. And, you know, then, you know, 10 years later, that kid is Ronaldinho. And so, (laughs) and so we see that, but then when we start to see this, this issue of, okay, well, soccer registration for, for the, for this year costs $5,000. Well, that's a pretty significant barrier to people. And one of these things where we don't realize that the best soccer player in Canada might never actually play soccer one because of economics two because of maybe they're playing hockey, or maybe they're doing something else. Right. And so that's another thing that I think, you know, I, I like to talk to you about is the, about the thing, the people that are the best may not be the best because of, uh, may not be actually the best. They just might be the best person who played that sport, right? Like the best hockey player could be someone in Africa. They'll never play hockey. So it's, yeah. it's one thing to, you know, to, we trick ourselves in this talent thing, but we don't necessarily have a, a, an entire pool of the whole world to see who really is the best, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's the way we, uh, we often talk about the, you know, the one that has the Olympic medal around his neck is, uh, or her neck is she's the best player that was identified by a system and was able to thrive. Uh, that doesn't mean she's the fastest runner on the planet because that person might not have ever been found by a system. They might be living in the middle of Africa somewhere where they just don't get exposure to high performance sport. The best hockey player could be, you know, the best, the person with the most hockey talent, ice hockey here could be growing up in the middle of Australia right now, but they're never going to see an ice hockey rink. And so, um, you know, the other thing about that is people don't develop in a specific way that have a set of um, skills that could only show up in one sport. There's, um, you know, I think we need to be thinking about sports in terms of categories the demands of ice hockey, we can see those representative demands in other activities. And it's the the training and the fine tuning of really specific skills that we'll see in an ice hockey player. But that ice hockey player at, you know, U11, U13 could have been a rugby player, could have been a, you know, a handball player. It, it depends on what system they come from. So I don't think we, you know, we want to be careful about using this person that has talent that's only going to show up in hockey very rarely do we see that kind of thing. And the only, you know, the only really ones that I think are good examples of this is, well, if your peak height is uh, predicted to be over seven feet, well, then we're, there's a really limited number of sports that you're going to be able to thrive in. Uh, most of the time, the skills can transfer across sports. Um, the more interesting thing, or maybe more important thing is what does the athlete want to do? Because they're going to have to devote, you know, 10 years or 15 years of their leisure time and their non-leisure time to training for that sport. And so it doesn't matter if they're, you know, they're best suited for ice hockey. If they hate ice hockey and don't, mm -hmm. and don't like to skate, then that's a terrible sport for them. Yeah. Oh, well, building off this then, where does the term natural athlete exist mm -hmm. in our vocabulary? Is it something that we should reference is it something that we should do away with it's probably a term that people use without really understanding what it means but how do we go about including or excluding this this term from our conversation about athletics we're we're in the process at the moment of writing a paper um to get people to stop using the word talent um altogether so natural talent natural athlete all that kind of stuff uh, because there's too much baggage that comes along with those terms um we like to say talent is a thing that um, it's a concept that we can use in science because it's it it really reflects differences between individuals that could affect their potential for future success. But when we try to use it in practice, um, it has more. I, I think it does more harm than good because it focuses on talent as a as a capacity as a thing that can be identified. And so instead of talent identification or um, talent selection, we're trying to move towards athlete identification and athlete selection because it puts the person back into that discussion. Mm -hmm. And when you think about um, the task of selection or identification as finding a person as a phone, as opposed to finding a capacity, it, it makes it a more nuanced kind of, um, you know, exercise and process that you're going through. A person isn't fixed. A person is developing over time. You know, how they show up today is the result of experiences and opportunities that they've had. You, you start to make the process more complicated and more, you know, I think accurate in terms of reality than if you just think talent is a fixed thing that you can just, you know, dial up in a recipe somewhere. And if your research has shown anything, it's shown for sure that we're very bad at <laughs> predicting talent and choosing talent as a, as a, across the board. And there's many, many reasons for that, but we're just, we just don't seem to be good at it. And no matter how many millions of dollars are, are poured into scouts and whatnot, th there are things that go above that. And we're just not very good at it. Like an easy example. And, and probably everyone who's been involved to sport to some degree has an example of this is like, it's also about who, you know, if you just get the shot yeah. and you show up on that day to, to you have your best game on that day, you're significantly more likely to get into the system and, and take it where it goes. But say, you know, you are the best player in the team and the day that the scout shows up, you know, you, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, you're just in a bad mood for whatever reason, you don't have a good day. And then you're just, you know, go off into oblivion, never play the sport again at a very high level like that. That is real and that happens. And so this natural athlete thing is like, or there are ability to identify talent is just not very good because it's predicated on far too many things that, that one human can even comprehend.
Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the, you know, there's a two, there's maybe two or three elements there. One is the, um, you know, the potential that the athlete actually has on the day that they show up with. Um, the other one is the, the absolute luck of being in the right place at the right time for that to even happen. So that, you know, the athlete waking up on the wrong side of the bed, the scout just randomly seeing a, you know, an athlete playing in a game that they weren't even planning to stop and watch, like all those kinds of things. We know that those things happen. The other one that I think is maybe more realistic and we forget is um, that this is a really complicated thing that we ask coaches to do, at, uh, at, especially at early uh, developmental stages. We don't look at kids and you know, grade five and say, well, you know, there's our doctor right there, you know, look at his score on a math test, but we'll do that in sport, right? Like these things, these things have consequences that are much more profound and much more uh, damaging in sport settings than in almost any other area that humans are involved in. Uh, and so we need to understand that this process has so many more ways of going wrong than it goes right. Uh, and so the likelihood is all of our selection decisions are going to be wrong, not because we're wrong, but because the thing we're trying to predict is so complicated and nuanced and unpredictable that the majority of the time those things are going to be wrong. And so for me, the more important element is if we have to make selections, and in a lot of sports we do because we don't have the resources to keep everyone, we don't have enough coaches at the highest levels to be able to provide you know, optimal skill-based feedback to everyone. So how do we make that selection so that it has zero implications and effects on the person that's deselected? For me, that's the more important uh, question uh, and the more important issue is how can I tell you, you know what, you didn't make the team this year and it has zero impact on your ability and, and desire to practice tomorrow. For me, I think that's the area that we need to be searching in. Um, how do I deliver that feedback in a way that doesn't you know, it doesn't seem like a career ending piece of feedback to an athlete in the development system. And the larger scope of that is also what are the long term implications of that kid's life thereafter? Forget about their their athletic career, but their life. The, the last line in the book is I'll read it off is given the low rates of youth engagement in sports and physical activity, high performance systems should be doing everything they can to maintain all athletes engagements at any level for as long as possible. And I, I absolutely love that because we see kids drop out of sport at 12 years old, you know, maybe 14 years old when you start to get a part-time job or a boyfriend or girlfriend or, you know, social stuff with your friend and sport becomes less important. And, uh, and then they just go down a different path. And, and now health, the health implications of this are no longer good. And so it's like, oh, I used to be an athlete. So we have this, this idea that like we used to be healthy and I'm sure we've all, we all know someone who's, you know, 50 plus years old. Oh, I played football in high school. It's like, okay, yeah, but that was you know, 35 years ago. Like you, you haven't, you haven't run 35 years. What you did in high school doesn't impact, well, it does impact, but it doesn't dictate your health and fitness today if you haven't done anything. So we need to be able to keep people not necessarily in sport, but involved in fitness and health and activity for as long as possible for reasons far beyond athletics. Yeah. And I think that's the focus of our uh, research in our lab, right? Like we do a lot of work with high performing athletes, but our, our overall mission is the power of sport in general. And so um, I think that's the, you know, that's why the talent selection and identification part is so important because it's, it's almost a, that's the door that opens for a lot of people that leads to their exit out of sport. And so how do we, how do we manage that decision-making process better so that it's less likely to do that so that people don't leave sport with a negative taste uh, in their mouth about their sport experience. The reality is the majority of people in high performance sport are not going to be the ones that emerge at the end because the few that emerge is so small a number that most of the system is not a selection system. It's a deselection system. And so how do we ensure that those people don't leave sport hating sport and the experience that they had there? Because like you said, we know the cost of that and it's decades sitting on the couch and being inactive and sedentary. We have a huge problem with that in our society. And I think the way we deliver sport could help. Um, and if we focused on, again, optimizing environments for everyone, you know, most people will will recognize when they're not suited to the Olympics. Uh, and if we give that autonomy to them to say, you know what, 
when we deselect somebody, you say, here are the things that you did well. Here's why you weren't selected this year. This is where your gaps are. Um, I want you to keep working on these things and maybe try by uh, coming back next year and trying out again uh, to do that. You know, here's what we need. We need more investment from you. Um, you're going to have to stop going out with your friends on the weekends if you really, really want this. If you give that agency to the person, they'll probably in, in an accurate way decide, you know what, this isn't for me. I don't want to sacrifice these kinds of things. It's not, you know, it's not the be all and the end all for me. We give that agency to that person. They probably transition out of sport in a more positive way than that uh, situation where the coach says, no, you're on the team, uh, you know, good luck with your life. Uh, and so I think, you know, we could manage that a lot better and it might help us at the end of the, at the end of life when we're looking for people to be more active so that we don't see this chronic disease burden in our, um, older population. This is, this is, I think speaks to the power of, of the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. People who say things like, I'm not a good athlete. I'm part of the B team or, you know, go uh, a little bit further into, you know, regular life. Uh, You know, I can't lose weight. I struggle to uh, lift heavy weights. I struggle to eat healthy. If you continue to tell yourself this and it is somehow validated externally by other people or whatever, then you start to believe that more and more and it becomes harder and harder to break that cycle. So I think what you said there to highlight it is framing our shortcomings, not as you're not good enough, but you're not there today and here's what you can do to get there tomorrow or next week or whatever it is, is a very important way, I believe, to start to reframe, again, the stories that we tell ourselves. If someone struggles to lose weight, you may be struggling to lose weight right now, but here are the things that you might start to add or take away or change about your lifestyle that will help you to lose weight in the future. So you are not a person who struggles to lose weight. You are just currently struggling to do so, but that doesn't mean that that's the way it's going to be for forever. And so again, I think we need to be careful about the way that we deselect uh, from sport and deselect our, our traits from our, the rest of our life and, and try to frame them positively, but with constructive, constructive criticism. Yeah. And I think that was one of the messages that I tried to lay a foundation for in the beginning of the book. When I, Mm -hmm. when I put up those odds of success in the different professional uh, leagues, like the, you know, the likelihood of an under uh, pre-high school, a basketball player making it to the NBA is one in 70,000. Well, that means there's 69,999 people that are going to be deselected from that system. Uh, So how do we manage those people so that they don't grow up hating basketball? Um, that should be our focus because the, the one in 70,000, they're going to be motivated to stay. They're going to be more likely to be selected. The system is going to take care of them. The system needs to do a better job of taking care of those other 69,000 athletes that are going to leave because we know the consequences of them leaving in a negative way. And it's, they, they drop out of their sport. Uh, so I think, you know, like you said, we can do a better job of managing these things and the benefits of managing these things better are so much more profound than just interest in sport and buying NBA jerseys. No, this is, this is the thing that's going to affect so many long-term health outcomes um, that it's, it's important from a sport perspective. It's important from a, you know, human and ethical and social justice perspective, but it's also something that would help us solve some of these major social problems that we have in our society that we are not doing a good job of solving at the moment. Yeah, I, I totally agree and, and would encourage everyone to listen back to the to that section because it, it's it's the most important thing. I, I've always said that sport has taught me more than most other things in my life. And, it, and when I actually think back to it, it's not stuff that I realized at the time, but it's stuff that I realized as I became an adult and you know reflected back on my life. And it's like, oh yeah, like there's a reason why I wasn't like, doing drugs and partying in high school. It's because I had soccer practice on Saturday morning. And, you know, not to yeah. say that's like an extreme example, not to say that I would have done that without sport, but like the, the, the temptation is there because I've got nothing else like really holding me back, you know, parents and family and all that stuff aside. But maybe that was a bad example. I shouldn't have said that. But but I think everyone understands the the, the point of what I'm getting at there. One one kind of spin off of, of all of this stuff uh, with sport is I wonder whether esports and the emergence of esport and the ecosystem around esport breaks any of the rules, or does it seem to be following the same line of of progression as other sports? Because there's not really 
organized leagues by by governments per se yet um and it it translates across ages all over the world there's a lot lower barrier to entry than probably any sport to get into the system like kids in brazil can play soccer with a garbage bag but they might not be able to get into a system but anyone with a, an internet connection can get into a league so how do we how do you see esports kind of developing and where is it going does it change any of the rules of any of this stuff it's a it's a really interesting phenomenon that we're seeing uh, you know develop at the moment. I gotta be honest, it's not really an area that I'm an, uh, I have much expertise in. But I think what's neat about esports, and I'm sure if we were to predict its evolution over time, um, is there's a link between um, physical fitness and physical capabilities and cognitive performance. So you can say esports is you know it's not very active. They're sitting a lot. It's sedentary time. But if you're talking about the highest levels of performance, you need to be fit in order to be able to sit there for that long and attend. And so physical fitness might come as a foundation for that kind of performance, which is done in a sedentary way. We see similar sorts of things in uh, games like chess. The the chess grandmasters that are winning major tournaments are very fit individuals. It has nothing to do with the sport other than you have to be a really fit individual in order to be able to do that sport at the highest levels. And so for me, I think that's what I would like to see in esports space. If we're thinking about the sedentary, the sedentariness and that sort of movement towards a lack of activity, well, let's focus on the benefits of being a fit individual in order to maximize your performance in that activity. Let's not try to undermine um, that relationship by saying physical fitness doesn't matter. Let's put it in there as here's why you need to go out and do your training before you do, you know, your five hours online or whatever. Because it's going to, you're going to get more out of that five hours if you're starting from a place of fitness. And I think we, I, I'm not very well versed in the esports world either, but my, my youngest brother is, and I talk to him about it uh, every now and then. And he tells me, you know, the, the top guys, they, they do work out and they do have like a training yeah. regimen and uh, mental training regimens as well as they're, you know, playing their sport, playing the game. But I think one yeah. thing that maybe might um, be very different is that there is not a physical, uh, difference that would exist in the in the anthropometric data of the esports athletes. Like a six foot five player is not going to be better than a five foot three player, and so in in almost yeah. no other sport would we see that today, right? Uh, tall players are going to play sports for tall athletes, and short players are going to play sports for short athletes. But that wouldn't really exist in um, in esports, and so the the. I, I'm not sure whether the talent identification, again, to use that term very loosely, as a skill might actually be better because we're selecting for more performance in the game versus like, oh, that kid's tall. He's going to be good when he's older. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. And I think it's, um, you know, I don't know that it's simpler uh, because the, you know, when you remove the physical stuff, when you remove the stuff that's actually easier to measure, um, the task becomes a lot more complicated. Mm. The fact that physical stuff doesn't matter actually makes the identification task more complicated because the things that do matter, maybe, you know, grit, persistence, resilience, uh, passion, uh, maybe even cognitive skills like executive functioning, um, you know, three-dimensional uh, spatial reasoning, that kind of stuff. Well, those things probably make a difference in a virtual world. And they're so much more complicated to be able to assess and measure. Um, it probably makes the talent identification task more difficult, not easier. It, it presents new new challenges and in getting into the the nitty gritty of other yeah. things, right? So yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense for sure. Do we then do we see some of these same issues with talent identification across? Um, a business or in the corporate world, selecting someone who's going to be a top level, you know, Bay Street lawyer. Do yeah. do we see some sort of maybe not the similar, maybe not the same effects, but similar things that are like these things that we, we wouldn't necessarily understand that or or predict that that would be a predictor of a good lawyer, but like the the birth month of their their birth month would predict. Do we see similar things across the corporate world? We see it in education. I don't know that anybody's looked at it in the corporate world, but we definitely see it in grades in education, which we know predicts certain kinds of outcomes, uh, university, uh, you know, your success, those kinds of things. Um, <coughs> so we probably see some indicator of it. The talent identification, it's interesting. I was on a podcast a, a couple of weeks ago where we, we talked about talent from a, a recruitment perspective for employers. 
Um, and it's interesting because the, you know, the, some of the things that we've worked out in sport, um, they haven't worked out in, in industry yet. And I think this, you know, we see it all the time when we, uh, organizations will have employees take standardized personality tests. Uh, there's a lot of these kind of fluffy ones out there to see what kind of, you know, what colors are your employees and you don't want your <laughs> reds working with your greens and this kind of stuff, which puts people in a box, right? And we know that there's problems when you do that. And it's much more realistic and and uh, thoughtful, I think, to see your employees as capacities to be developed. The way that we're trying to get the change the narrative with athletes is they're not fixed. Don't look at ta- them as being talented uh, individuals that are fixed in terms of their capacity for growth and development. We need to be thinking about employees exactly the same way as at the moment, you look like you're this, but I'm going to give you a bunch of opportunities and see which ones, what areas you thrive in, what areas are you getting the most out of. And then we'll figure out a tailored development schedule to to help you thrive in that environment. Again, we'd get much more out of employees if we did that. They'd be more satisfied in their jobs. Productivity would go up. Um, but we still have this tendency to kind of look at them as if they're fixed. If you're a blue, you're always going to be a blue. Well, no, that's that's not the way human development works. It seems or it sounds like we trade that talent label for uh, a personality test label. And so it's yeah. it's not calling it talent, but it's calling it something else because, you know, that uh, workplace has identified that, uh, you know, the blue personality types are better in the job. And that would just be a, a, a roundabout way of saying that that person is more talented based on this personality test or whatever it is. So we always have this constant need to to just label things, right? Which is, which is I, I understand it. It's part of our psychology and it helps us understand the world around us and where we fit in, but it also causes problems obviously. <laughs> yeah. And it's all, and it's also um, like, you can understand why they do it, but it's a, it's a too simple a way of thinking about uh, human development and human performance. And if there's one takeaway from, you know, 30 years of research in this field is that anytime somebody thinks they have the answer, you can dismiss them almost immediately because there isn't one answer. There's a th- If you've got a thousand employees, there's a thousand answers. And so you need to figure out what's the answer for this employee at this point in time, knowing that the answer is going to change as the employee changes, as the environment changes, as the, the, pushes, the pushes and pulls in that environment change. Uh, so you need to be much more dynamic in your thinking. Agreed. I, I think to start to, to start to wrap this up for fear of going into Joe Rogan territory as we <laughs> discussed before before recording um, if we dismiss the idea of talent or we don't subscribe to it any longer and we understand that hard work resiliency grit and, and time in the system and these things are far and away that well first of all they're the things that you can control more than your again quote-unquote talent uh, it can seem like well all I got to do is just work hard if I want to be if I want to be elite, if I want to make it to the pros, if I want to be LeBron James, I just got to grind and like put my nose down and keep working. And I think, you know, we, we extrapolate that you want to be the best lawyer on Bay Street. You just got to keep working, all that stuff. But what people don't understand about this is they might not really understand how much work and how much sacrifice is truly involved in that. So it can be a slippery slope to say you want that, but you have to start to really understand what that means. It doesn't mean you play hard today. It means you play your hardest every single day for the rest of time. That, like That's what it takes to be the absolute best. And so how do we go about, you know, trying to, uh, to moderate this. Well, I want to be elite and, and helping people understand what that actually takes. I think there's a couple of, uh, solutions there. One is, um, is getting them to understand the sacrifice that's necessary in order to be at that optimal level. Um, and then the, you know, the flip side of that is to get them to understand whether that's a sacrifice that they want to make. Um, and, and also to, devalue the um you know almost devalue the elite level a bit more than we do in our society right now where you know we got a lot of kids in sport and if they don't if if they're not playing at the elite level a lot of them are like well why am i doing this well most people are not going to end up at the you know at the professional level or at the olympics and so you do it for the journey you don't do it for the outcome and i think we need to shift that in sport but also everywhere because 
you know, you, yeah, you can work harder and be a better lawyer on Bay Street or, you know, make more money or those kinds of things. But here's what you lose when you do that. You don't spend as much time with your kids. You don't get enough free time to go on holidays. Okay, so now if we give you all of the pieces of information and you're a thoughtful adult, you can make those decisions for yourself. But we do that by by disempowering this level of being the best. Some people are perfectly wired. You know, a LeBron James or a Kobe Bryant or those kinds of athletes are perfectly wired to want to make those sacrifices. Most people are not. And it's fine to it's fine to decide, you know what, I don't want to make more money. I want to spend more time with my kids. We need to change the focus in our society so that the, the participating at the elite level is not the only reason you do sport. Because again, to come back to something we talked about earlier, it undermines this lifespan engagement in sport that we want more people to be involved in. Um, you know, there's value in participating in sport at any level that you can do it in. And so find the one that fits for you and your values and and what you want out of your life and do it as much as possible. That's the way that we should be thinking about sport. And if that's at house league or rec or, you know, a pickup pickleball at your local Y, amazing. That's great. But don't, you know, and I have this discussion with my, uh, my big third year class at York if you think you don't like sport, it's because you haven't been exposed to the right sport yet because sport is not a single thing. There's sports for everybody. And so if you think, you know, sport's not for me, it's because you haven't found the right fit for you. And it's amazing how many people we see coming through uh, their lifespan and they find a sport like pickleball when they turn 60 and they move to a retirement community or whatever. And it's like a light bulb goes off. You know, this can be fun. I thought sport was something I should hate. Um, we need to figure out how to make that transition for people. And I think part of it is devaluing this label of elite sport. Well, sport is something you do to go to the Olympics. Well, no, that's not why you do sport. Some people are lucky enough to be able to do that, but the majority of us should be doing it because it's amazing. To translate that into you know, applicable to everyday people, the fitness version of that is someone who, you know, and I deal with this fairly often someone comes in and says, I want to get to 8% body fat. And I say, okay, great. Here's what it's going to take. Do you still want to do that? Oh shit. That sounds like not something I want to do. Like, okay, great. Well, maybe we just get down to like 13% and like, you know, let's then let's adjust from there. Cause that seems a little bit more reasonable or whatever, whatever it is for them. So it's like understanding what, like knowing what you want and then understanding what it actually takes to get that thing that you claim that you want and then if you're willing to do what it takes to get that, then great, go, go ahead. If not, then, you know, change the, change the plan kind of thing. Right. And, and, and yeah, even, exactly. even with fitness, like people say, I don't, I don't like working out. I don't enjoy working out. I don't enjoy strength training. Okay. That's fine. Like, obviously I'm biased. I enjoy it. It's what I do. It's a thing. I think there's extreme value in it for everyone. That's all fine. But if you absolutely hate it, then, you know, you try spinning, you try a Zumba class, you try a this thing, you tr- like there's so many other things to try. And I think what you said is great. It's, it's not that you don't like it. You just haven't found the one that's for you yet. Yeah. And I think that's the that's the important takeaway. Right. Because um, I, I it, and I'm sure there are individuals out there, but the majority of us, we're all the same species. Our species is has, is built for movement. It's built for activity. We're not made to sit in chairs for, you know, for multiple hours a day. We're, we're meant to be moving. Uh, and so if, if you don't enjoy that yet, I think it's a, it's an issue of exposure as opposed to, you know, the, you being the one individual of the 7 billion of us that doesn't like to move. Um, maybe you're going to classes that are too focused on performance and not an, on uh, enjoyment. Maybe you haven't found the right social group. Uh, maybe you're embarrassed because you haven't been active enough. Well, these are all psychological things that we can manage. Totally agree. And, and very well said, Dr. Baker. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. And, and I'm sure that many people will enjoy this. Um, let people know uh, where they can they can purchase the book, uh, the title of the book and, and your contact info if they want to just follow along for, for your updates. And I'll post everything in the show notes. Sure. Let us let us know. Sure. Uh, so the book is called "The Tyranny of Talent: uh, How It Limits and Compels um, Athletic Achievement and Why You Should Ignore It." 
And uh, yeah, Amazon is the best place to pick that up um, at the moment. Um, but you can also follow me on Twitter um, at uh, Baker J York U. Um, I've also, if you search for Joe Baker, York University, you'll see my personal webpage. Uh, any comments, feedback, I'm always happy to have discussions with people about this is, uh, this stuff. This is what I do all day. So I, I love chatting about talent and how it applies to people in different environments. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Daniel, for the conversation. It was a lot yeah, of fun. Fantastic. Thank you very much. The, the Tyranny of Talent, get it on Amazon, at Baker J, York U on Twitter. I'll put the links in the show notes uh, and all that stuff. Dr. Baker, is there any last message that you want to leave the people with here in closing? Um, yeah, maybe just to, again, uh, our big message across the whole conversation they've been is, uh, I think has been, um, you know, if, if talent exists, we probably don't measure it very well. And so to the extent possible, forget about talent and focus on hard work and improving, uh, development in that overall, um, overall process of human development and engagement. Um, and don't think that there's going to be a one size fits all strategy. I think that's, those are the big takeaways from not just the book, but I think our, 20 years plus of uh, doing research in this area. Beautiful. Agreed. Well said. Thank you very much again. Thank you everybody for listening. Follow at Baker J York U, Tyrion of Talent. Um, the book is available on Amazon everywhere. Follow the podcast. Uh, follow me on everywhere. Social media at Daniel Yours. Like, share, subscribe, all those good things. Go outside. Be a good person. We'll see you next time.